as segments oh god yeah my youtube algorithm i've realized these intros or what i choose to be the intros is most of the time us talking about stuff that we're watching or doing yeah i've always liked that it's a movie podcast but this is also things that like <laughs> yeah it's fun they're things you think you might like to watch <laughs> i think people are a little bit secretive because you had to have gotten there somehow it's like those old games where it's like pull up your contacts pull up your missed calls read your fifth text Twin Peaks summarized in one scene. Okay. Not my taste. That's 29 seconds. Yeah, I don't like those videos either. My genre, Stormy Night at Scottish Castle 4K. Heavy rain and distant rolling thunder. <laughs> Is it just a still image that's in 4K? Yeah, I don't like the still image. It's just like field recording, but with camera. I like that one. I hadn't seen the Scottish Castle one, so okay, YouTube. Train cab ride to Bulgaria. Sophia Davarna. I like watching train videos when I'm reading. <laughs> Whoa. What perspective is it? POV um, conductor. POV. It's so soothing. Yeah. It's six hours and 52. That's a good one. And then a, a version of that genre. I love tugboats. They'll do it on boats sometimes. Tugboats. And for when you don't want a black screen on your TV, if you have to be in that room, you know, it's ADHD core. <laughs> TJ and Dave on the interview show, part one. Oh, yeah. You've never done anything for them. <laughs> I rarely see improv stuff on the feed. That's a crazy one. I haven't watched improv on YouTube. <laughs> Me neither. Sandy Allen, the world's tallest woman, visits the Howard Stern show. <laughs> oh, okay, it's a Stern. <laughs> That's become my nighttime one. I fall asleep to these ones randomly. Robin Williams and Matt Damon interview for... Goodwill Hunting. Mm -hmm. I like that. I often think about that scene. I wonder how they play together because that that um, it's not your fault scene. That's some good on screen chemistry. They must have gotten along backstage, but you don't picture Matt Damon and Robin Williams really getting along. <laughs> no, you're yeah. Good point. Welcome to the Sand Trap, a podcast exploring the life and career of actor Adam Sandler, one of the greatest comics of his generation. My name is Ben Castle. I'm Jeffrey Lehman. Ooh. What, I don't know what, what I was doing there. I just tried to hinge my jaw, but it sounded like I was trying to do a British. Yeah, it sounded you're needed in the study. Yeah. Guess what? I'm Jeffrey Lehman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I always come in almost the same. I'm like a machine. You're trying to think of how can I... I'm running out already. <laughs> we are doing a different style of episode. We're not talking about a specific film. We're taking the opportunity to go into Sandler's production company, Happy Madison Production. Terrific. There's been two before this that he's done a small role in, and that's Coneheads and Dirty Work. Those were still minor roles, but they were more than just a scene. This is the third we're encountering where he's done a small role. This one is actually an off-screen voice, Deuce Bigelow. And it's also the first of his Happy Madison productions. So going forward, there will be more Happy Madison movies that are technically part of his filmography, but he doesn't really show up in. So now's the time to set out this big part, a new stage in his career, an opening door. They're definitely not worth our time for a full episode. Mm -hmm. They are helping define his success for the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. They also might feed into why aesthetically he starts to do what he does. When he starts to see the numbers of success of these, I can see that starting to have an effect on what he ends up gravitating towards in his own movies. Just the demands and influence of owning a production company and how that influences decision, you mean? We're in the heat of the moment now in grandeur. And a lot of these early ones in Happy Madison are, well, the whole company is very, very successful. Mm -hmm. His decline is Jack and Jill, is the low point. Maybe these movies and him working on them and seeing how, I don't know, what do you think? Do you think that it influences his personal taste? 
in his movies. And maybe that's how we end up with something like Jack and Jill. Yeah, I absolutely think that he has his finger on his scale. He's shaping a decade of comedy. It's like a bubble. It's like any bubble. It's like the dot-com bubble or the housing bubble. It's like a Sandler bubble. It kind of happened in a microcosm in the 90s with the pop of Little Nicky. Every Sandler picture you think of as a Sandler picture when you're listening to the podcast is a Happy Madison production. And then it also includes Deuce Bigelow, Male Gigolo, Joe Dirt, The Animal, Master of Disguise, The Hot Chick, Dickie Roberts, Former Child Star, Deuce Bigelow, European Gigolo, Grandma's Boy, The Bench Warmers, Strange Wilderness, The House Bunny with Anna Ferris, Paul Blart, Mall Cop 1 and 2, The Shortcut, which I don't know. Do you know The Shortcut? No. Yeah, this is a horror movie I don't know about, The Shortcut. It only grossed a million dollars. <laughs> Zookeeper, Bucky Larson, Born to Be a Child Star. Here comes the boom. Joe Dirt 2. There's a Joe Dirt 2. And then The Week Of by Robert Smigel. And The Wrong Missy, right? The Wrong Missy was the latest, yes. You can see a theme there. It's the stable. He's either making movies for himself or he's letting the stable lead. Despite that list, you might be thinking those all were bad. (laughs) Most people think that those movies were bad. You might be thinking. (laughs) But people were watching them. (laughs) And not only were people watching them, they were showing up to pay for them. Nearly every single one of those movies we listed made a profit. This company, I'm pretty sure Gross, has made almost $4 billion. My God, yeah. They've invested, obviously, a lot. Some of these movies are $100 million to make. But something like Grown Ups was like $40 million around there, and it grossed $200 million. The only ones that made less than their budget, Little Nicky, Eight Crazy Nights, Strange Wilderness in 08, Funny People, Bucky Larson, and That's My Boy, Famous Bomb. But that's it. Out of... Producing that many for that long, that's phenomenal. I think the only other person who's done it is maybe me. I think our pot. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Maybe there's been one or two duds, but the rest have been top shelf. You can't talk about Sandler without talking about his Happy Madison productions and becoming an A-list comedy star. And Sandler mirrors and or enacts, causes kind of this tumbling domino. Not like by his own fault, but, you know, as part of the machine and the reason that We don't have those kinds of stars today is because of the technology as it has upended every part of life from DVD and physical media to the 2000s, which was like a transition period between streaming things and like computers just exponentially getting microchips (laughs) to where we are now, which is, uh, you know, social media infecting brains and usurping all communication. And Sandler ends up being like a nail in the coffin or at least the last one to get out before the flood. Clearly, we are interested in Happy Madison and know that it's important. So we wanted to dedicate an episode to it just to give some more background on a different passion of ours, which is the industry. I can concisely do it. You can put the music behind it. The birth of Hollywood in the 1910s. People moving out to LA, making these movies after Edison invents this picture show. 1920s, you got your silent movies. The invention of the talkie is in 1925. That through the 50s is studio system where the studio moguls own stars. Hayes Code era. Yeah, there's the Hayes Code. You can't watch sex on screen. You know, it's very puritanical. And then that falls apart. The 60s, New Hollywood gets birthed. We've got Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Bonnie and Clyde. And then the 70s is its highlight. That's the best movies with no filter. It's art, baby. You get death and sex and everything good. And then Star Wars comes in and blockbusters come in and Spielberg is born in Jaws. And then 80s is all sequels. Then 90s, this is when we start. That's what we're talking about. After the wake of sequels, 70s is no longer here. It's 20 years out. What's movie's going to be? Turns out it's going to be traded by brands and franchises. I thought it would help. <laughs> For as long as there's been a Hollywood, there's been a industry trying to figure out the best way to make the most money possible, creating these stories for people. For example, the Oscars recently happened. The Oscars started because suits, executives, people who represented these people, realized that they needed a PR machine. 
these kind of decisions are ever present throughout the history of the medium. Mm -hmm. These are the kind of people behind the scenes that are deciding not only what we watch, but also what ends up being ingrained in our emotional selves. Studios and producers don't know much, but what they do know is a pattern. They recognize patterns and are very sensitive to the idea of replicating and trying to emulate what seems to be successful at that time. It has to be an industry of reaction, but Sandler was a good bet. As we've seen with these first five movies, Billy Madison, Happy, Wedding Singer, Waterboy, Big Daddy, Exponential Growth. So rather than base the episode off of a movie as our grounding point, we have a book. The book is called The Big Picture, The Fight for the Future of Movies. Ben Fritz, who is a editor for the Wall Street Journal. He uses the Sony leak hacks. I know that seems like ancient history now. I even forgot that happened. It kind of passed over my head when it happened, but I didn't understand the ramifications I was doing. My, I, was, I had my own business. I didn't understand. It was hard to understand the gravity of it. I just remember reading the like emails or like the certain ones and headlines and being like, wow, it doesn't matter the misspellings or the typos. These things I thought I cared about, they don't matter at all. <laughs> no, for how much work you have to do to make a resume look good, you see their emails to each other and they look like a dog fell on the keyboard. Yeah, I know. It's whether it's like voice to speech or like just autocorrect, it's just like they'll repeat words. They're like repeat. Z's and <laughs> but now it's style. Damn pension. <laughs> and also anyone who's watched Bojack probably understands more of that perspective now. Yeah. That's like a few times they've humanized that part of the industry. Yeah, that's part of why Bojack became so remarkable. The big picture highlights Sony pictures in particular because of Amy Pascal and Michael Linton, an executive and a producer. Amy Pascal and Michael Linton are key to what gets Adam Sandler a spot on the Sony lot for Happy Madison Productions. After Big Daddy, Amy Pascal and Michael Linton make him an A-lister. He becomes an A-lister by himself, but they give him a spot on the Sony lot. They invest in him. Pascal ends up as chairman of Columbia after a long career. Sony is a technology company that acquires Columbia. They all become Sony Pictures. She's chairman of Columbia. And she works alongside Michael Linton, who once worked at Penguin, CEO of Penguin in the 90s, and then ends up kind of being this outsider who comes into Hollywood. Amy Pascal being like a Los Angeles born and raised movie lover, champion the mid-budget movie that ends up completely dying out that we see like none of today, or at least not from studios. I've heard the phrase so often, movies made for adults. To give an idea, what are some only some of the movies that she has produced? She was known for taste. She ushered in Groundhog Day, Jerry Maguire, Big Daddy, As Good As It Gets, things that didn't have a logline that would sell today. You know, it didn't have a Marvel brand. It didn't have a brand name, a franchise. It was a concept, a story. She took chances. When she swung big, she hit. So she had a track record, but she was known for following a gut. Hollywood has many parts. Actors, directors, writers. But... Now behind the scenes, you got suits, ascots. These are the executives. There are some that sneak into the system, just lovers of movies. But I think I gave the history because this is the 70s being the iconic best decade of cinema is what these moguls were going to be talking about in the 90s, 2000s, and 2010s came out of. That's what they remember. It's so close to them. The history of Happy Madison Productions is like the late fall of the Roman Empire. It's like the end of those kinds of movies. It is. She had some of my favorite movies, even like most recently after being fired from Sony Pictures after that hack, she like most recently did Little Women. Some of the best movies of the 2010s, greenlighting things like The Social Network, Zero Dark Thirty, American Hustle. By now it's an old-fashioned Hollywood mogul style, but she aims for awards, prestige, 
she values the art of movies and she goes for that even if it's not necessarily profit, which at once was Hollywood conventional wisdom. You're still happy with an award even if it wasn't a huge hit. Award shows legitimize a medium in an art form. The book lays out Pascal and Linton as an odd couple. Amy is from LA. She's insider. She's passionate. Linton is an outsider, European, East Coast. Their sensibilities together create a lot of very prominent films. Everywhere else in studios, they're investing in premises or ideas. Pascal takes a more human approach. There's this hybrid happening here where Pascal is an artful producer who has a specific skill that she has been able to utilize in recognizing a good script, helping it in every step of the process to become a movie that gets acclaim and makes enough money to continue to be profitable. She likes to talk to the writers, the people involved, get a better idea of what they're looking for, and also back A-listers, invest in them, and more often than not, she believed, you will get good content. Let them do their thing. Once we can trust them, we don't interrupt what their process is. Mm -hmm. She's part of what makes Sony have the reputation of the most talent-friendly studio in Hollywood. To quote a bit from the big picture, Amy Pascal fell hard for Sandler after seeing him in The Wedding Singer. So when Chris Farley, who was set to star in the Sony comedy as an underachieving toll collector, suddenly died, she turned to Sandler. Big Daddy was another monster hit, grossing $235 million worldwide. And it turned Sony into a home for the star's new company, Happy Madison Productions. That is how Sandler gets here. Hollywood has always been a very unstable and vicious business to make money in. It's very high risk, very little reward. But that was less so when DVDs were very, very popular. Hollywood was operating as a welfare state, producing movies for everyone, 20 or more every year and paying for them up front. Typically, each studio would have five or so that they felt confident would make a profit, and one or two event films that they would put the most resources behind. The blockbuster invented by Jaws and Star Wars. Let's say those five don't really work out, and your blockbusters make you break even. What about the rest of those movies? DVD sales made sure that the company never really went too far under, because they were making, on average, about $15 per disc that was sold. So that physical media for them was a nice cushion to ensure that they could take more risks. So if you have a creative person like Pascal who invests in something and really believes in it, you might be able to make a movie from cheaper and then have it have a bigger turnaround. But if that doesn't work out, hey, at least you break even with the DVD sales. So there was this culture of having the ability to take more risks as a studio. Mm -hmm. Now, Sandler doesn't have to worry about that. The studio itself becomes his DVD sales. He now knows I'm going to get these things made regardless, and I'm going to get paid a pretty decent amount because the studio will love me as long as I keep making successful content. Blockbuster rental sales made Billy Madison and Happy Gilmore. It enables a cult classic, something that someone comes to later or maybe didn't make any money, but people realize that it was a mistake that no one went to. And then it gets even cheaper in 1997 when DVDs come in. DVDs are like priced as low as $13, which is like far below the wholesale $18 price. And people buy them rather than rent them. There's a quote, roughly 15% of the DVDs bought in the mid-2000s didn't even leave the shrink wrap. And so like money is just coming into the studios and just kind of sitting there and helping them finance more things that may bomb. They have more profit margin. They have more room. 
than just their hits and their misses. It wasn't until 2009 that there was a sudden unexpected drop in the DVD sales. It's almost like fate that it just happened right at the decade. DVDs were really popular and a phenomenon. People bought them because they had all these features on them. They could invest a little creativity to make them look cool. Wedding Singers DVD menu had karaoke that you could sing along with some of the songs on the soundtrack of the movie. They had so much room on these discs. Movies have this new life. Yeah, there were collector's discs, there were box sets. Even now, I can't imagine people buying Blu-rays except like Criterion, which got rid of all the frills. It's like record collecting. I remember I had a combination DVD for... Tommy Boy and Black Sheep. <laughs> These are kinds of things you'll see in a giant box bin at a grocery store now. Oftentimes when it does those combinations, two of them, usually they make sense. But sometimes you get like four and there's one crazy outlier. Yeah, like why didn't they pack Jerry Maguire with Dark Crystal? Okay, Van Wilder won, the remake of Van Wilder. And then Hot Chick? <laughs> you like, why are these all together? They're less than dirt now. A lot of actors in private, of course, because they can't be themselves in public. They're only themselves in public. <laughs> Some of them long for the days in the studio system. You had no freedom, but you had a bit of security. And that is what Sandler gets. As we saw with him on SNL, he gets backing from people who matter. That helps him create more security for himself in making movies from here on out. It's no longer him having to go to a studio and pitch like, remember Happy Gilmore. It's no longer him having to sell himself. It's him partnering with the studio. They make a deal with him. It's a right of first refusal deal where whatever he and Tim Hurley, he write, whatever Happy Madison Productions has, it by contract goes to Sony first. And then they can say no, and then they can sell it to another studio. But it's them investing in him being like, we want to put out your movies. Similar to kind of what Lauren had with Tommy Boy and all his other SNL features, just like in a New York tiny version, just him as a producer being like, I want it first, then you can go off. The studio system at this time that Sandler is having this come up, they used to slate about 25 movies for themselves a year. So they would have a romantic comedy or they'd have a horror picture. And in Sony's case, they now had a guaranteed Sandler movie. He wasn't required to make comedies, but yeah, they know Sandler. It's been five movies. And so as people are acquiring franchises, brand names, everyone's doing it except for Sony. Sony was trying to hold on to franchises, but they never got them. Their biggest was like they tried to hang on to Da Vinci Code. Demons, omens, codes, monks. Da Vinci. Those movies are weird. <laughs> you know what the triple feature is? It's Da Vinci Code, Twilight, Fifty Shades of Grey. Yeah. Trashy trilogies that become phenomenons that just sleepers that like dark mid-2000s gothic-y professor langdon you're in grave danger when we talk about this stuff a lot of it seems so intuitive because all this stuff has already happened so it's tough to put yourself back into the circumstance of what the movie business looked like for people and what the expectation was as an audience member we're all watching it but there was nothing we could do to stop it as much as we want to say we like these movies made for adults they don't make a lot of money yeah, we're not getting out of our houses because there's video games, there's Netflix. And also think about it, if you're an executive, who would be easier to control? The intellectual property that you pay one time for or dealing with an A-list actor? As A-listers die, they're holding on to them. And Sony's last two talent moneymakers are Will Smith and Adam Sandler. From here on out, when we're talking about these movies, they're going to be Happy Madison Productions unless a different director uses him. 
It's a symbiotic relationship. Sony is getting the security and consistency of an Adam Sandler movie, and Sandler is getting more money up front and the opportunity to continue to make movies without a lot of restriction. There's something called gross points, which is where they get a percentage of gross as revenue before profit. Sandler got that a lot, those gross points. He had a private jet that he could fly his family and friends around in. They knew he loved basketball. They installed a basketball court on the Sony lot called Happy Madison Square Garden. This is classic A-lister behavior. It was like my first notice in the press that Sandler had yelled, you know, or that there had been an angry confrontation. Yes. Sandler wanted to greenlight an adaptation of the board game Candyland around the early 2010s, which I'm the more Ebert here. But if you're talking board game movies, of which they've done like Battleship, all these things that don't lend themselves to movies, Candyland's the most. That has lore and tech. You think of the peppermint man on the stilts. You got gloopy. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean, it would be absolutely terrible. If that was a movie, that I think would be Robert Altman's Popeye. Oh, you're right. That would be the one who burst the bubble. Oh, I'm Popeye the Sailor Man. And I think that kind of rolls into Pixels. It would have been like Pixels. Pixels is like video game Candyland. You're right. Yeah. But he wanted to do Candyland. That's my boy. had been a flop. Hollywood had changed. Quote, when the studio proved reluctant, slowing down the development process, Sandler blew up during a, quote, very difficult conversation with Pascal. Quote, you said yourself Adam was going to be angry. Doug Belgrad reassured his boss. And you said you didn't care. You couldn't fix what was really bothering him. That he isn't the guy he once was. And nobody can make that better for him. End quote. Yikes. It was only the first time I'd found in writing or audio that he blew up. And that is the instability that for a long time was expected in the movies, but has in recent years been seemingly eliminated because they've gotten it down to an AI science. Marvel defines movies today, Disney, as the monopoly. It started in like the 90s when the Marvel brand was splintered and the rights sold for so cheap, but it all becomes franchise movies. When we talk about Marvel, there's a a term that keeps being thrown around of the Marvelization of culture, the serialization of known entities, less on people and more on brands or intellectual property that has a backing. Disney makes less movies. They found that if they spent over $100 million, it was actually more profitable and safer than if they spent less because they're betting on properties that they know people get to theaters for. And Sandler falls right in the middle of that alongside Will Smith, which is very funny. But I was looking at it and it makes, they have the same timeline, 1989 being DJ Jazzy Jeff and Fresh Prince. That's Overboard's year. 91 is a big prime SNL year. 91 is when Fresh Prince debuts. Will Smith's big breaks were Bad Boys in 1995 and Independence Day in 1996, which are like Billy Madison in 1995, Happy Gilmore in 1996. 1997, Mm. Adam Sandler's doing some writing, but that's when Men in Black takes off. That's Will Smith as movie star. Men in Black was Will Smith's franchise, but he took a bet on Pursuit of Happiness, and it worked. Hitch was the highest grossing rom-com. Sandler's an A-lister, but he's an A-lister comedian. Mm -hmm. What that means is that he is not known for being nice to look at. Will Smith and Brad Pitts and the Tom Cruises have to see themselves more as a object. Yeah. So they have to be a little bit more selective of what kinds of movies they put themselves in because it might tarnish the image that they have constructed for themselves or the public has constructed for them. Mm -hmm. Sandler doesn't have that problem. He's not trapped by this expectation. In fact, he is in a better space because critically, they never want to hear from him again. So why not be able to do whatever you like anyway? Which is coming back to what we talked about with Shakes the Clown, seeing these examples of the Bobcats and the Efrons. They don't have to negotiate their own image. Yeah. Will Smith and Tom Cruise and other A-listers always have to consider their brand. Sandler came in from SNL, from a dirty comedy background, doesn't have any pretensions about where he sits 
critically. He kind of avoids the press because he knows that the newspapers and critics have never liked him. But he knows his lane. And part of the thing that led him to the Netflix deal after DVD sales started falling, he was approached by Ted Sarandos of Netflix because after Netflix launched, they noticed that they were still watching a lot of Sandler movies. They were able to analyze the data. People were still watching them. He's still profitable, just like the video sales from Blockbuster. I don't know if I mentioned this when we were talking about John Waters' boy, but I was thinking about it when I listened to that interview with John Waters on WTF. Marin says that you combined a higher art with a snuff sensibility. Mm -hmm. If we want to go back to this John Waters comparison. I think we do. Sandler took the B comedy and put it on a big budget. Mm -hmm. He makes big budget B comedy. He puts down so much more money than these things are worth, and they end up paying off in the same way that Disney puts down $100 million rather than $20 million. He says, hey, let's put $40 million behind this premise, and I bet you it'll make 150 And at first it paid off in VHS and DVD rentals, and then it starts paying off at the box office. And then it starts paying off in DVD sales. And then streams. And then streams is what carries him into the next decade. He never wanes in popularity yet. So why is this worth its own episode? Because Deuce Bigelow wasn't. <laughs> Deuce Bigelow was a professional fish tank cleaner. That's a good way to put it. I think the sum of the existence of Happy Madison is more interesting than what is being made while he's at Happy Madison. Otherwise, we would have had to have the Happy Madison corner, which we still will dip into, but now we don't have to like put it in its own little Mr. Rogers imaginary world, you know, that we take a train to. I think we're so obsessed with it because nobody else has ever done this that we can think of. Nobody as a comic actor has ever done this. No. The only ones that come close are Jerry Lewis when he worked with Dean Martin. Yeah. It weirdly reminds me of Chaplin. Chaplin was able to adapt to talkies by continuing to make silent films, even though the sound technology was there. You know, like that was the last big technological change. Yeah. Chaplin and Keaton, they formed United Artists. In response, they still had their struggles. They had to reform their own artist forward studio. Singing in the Rain is all about that. I'm happy again. Sandler was one of the only comedy A-listers at the time of all these technological changes. Every A-lister had a different way of writing it out. Tom Cruise clung to his Mission Impossible franchise and his other franchises. Will Smith floundered a little bit in the waters. We'll see, like, who's to come. He's His latest was Gemini Man. He's kind of still, like, in the wilderness years. Sandler's been very relaxed. Part of him being just a natural, nice guy. He was approached by Netflix first, so he kind of rode that wave. And, you know, it's funny when you're listening off Cruise and Smith. The way they really coped is converting to Scientology. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's Isn't true. That crazy. He's the only one who hasn't done that. It's true. He's one of the few A-listers who doesn't even have that rumor about him. He's just Republican, <laughs> which there are, there are worse things because there are Scientologists. <laughs> Do we want to talk about Deuce Bigelow at all? I did watch it. We don't have to talk about it at all. Just say, I watched it. This is Rob Schneider's film. He's a gigolo. It was put out by Buena Vista Pictures, by Touchstone Pictures, which is a Disney company. It's all about sex. Keep going. I'll just fade you out. He goes to Eddie Griffin, who replaces Pimp, uh, where he becomes a pimp. He's basically, he's like house-sitting. He's a fish cleaner. Up there. 